listening to Access to Perspectives Conversations. My name is Joe Haverman. We're here today with Abigail Dean. So Abigail, welcome to the show. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and we met quite recently in a networking shared community. And again, I just highly recommend for anybody who's listening, join communities and not just one or two, but whatever interests you. So we have a shared interest in business, business development and purpose-driven, um, that is. And yeah, in, in, in the prep talk to this conversation, you mentioned um, the term, which was new to me, triple bottom line businesses whom you're aiming to serve as a web strategist, conceptualist, designer in, yeah, with the services that you provide, which we're keen to learn more about. But what's, yeah, so maybe let's get started with getting to know you. So what's your, because we also, you also have a research angle or you, you started as a researcher or considered a researcher's career and then um, figured that maybe entrepreneurship is more your thing. So how did this play out for you? Like what were the, was, was the trajectory on that path? Originally, I went to college for fish, wildlife, and conservation, and um, global environmental sustainability. So I've always been very passionate about our natural world and protecting it. A lot of people who go down that degree path end up in the research field, which is where I thought I was going to end up. After college, I landed two incredible internships. So the first one was working on a sailing fleet, teaching sailors about sea turtles, how to identify sea turtles and then log their data for a citizen science project, which was gathering a bunch of data about where sea turtles hang out all across the coast, the Pacific coast of Baja. That was incredible. So I kind of got more interested in conservation communication there rather than actually doing the research myself. I loved watching people's faces light up when we were talking about sea turtles or when they learned that they could be part of it or when they were learning something that they maybe didn't think they would be able to learn about. Because sometimes science can feel like this elusive thing and this overwhelming thing to people who don't have scientific backgrounds. Um, so that sparked my passion for conservation communications. And then I got a second internship in Hawaii. I was working on a marine rescue team. So we were working with the Hawaiian monk seals, seabirds and sea turtles, because they all kind of hang out on the beaches and hang out on the ground, which pose a lot of threats when there's a lot of people and stray cats and Hawaiian wildlife has a lot of struggles. But mainly what I ended up doing there was a lot of education work, talking to people on the beaches, talking to tourists about the endangered species, what they can do to help, what they shouldn't be doing. And after working with uh, these incredible organizations, I started to notice that there was a disconnect between the incredible mission that they had and being able to communicate that to the general public. And I remember there was this ecotourism group I worked with. They had this beautiful sailboat and they would take people out on eco tours, you could go swimming and snorkeling and see dolphins and sea turtles and the reefs. And their website just looked like, like a four-year-old put it together. So there wasn't anyone that was going to that website like, yes, this is so attractive and beautiful and I want to work with them. And it was also really difficult to navigate. Mm. So that kind of planted a seed in my mind. And then I, was really passionate about starting to write about these issues I was seeing. I wanted to write about the disconnect I was seeing and I wanted to bring more people into the environmental movement. So I started a blog and sometimes when I'm interested in things, I'll hyper-focus and get way too deep into it. So I ended up building this really beautiful website. And once it was ready for me to start blogging, I realized I enjoyed the building of the website much more than actually writing the blog. So I remembered this ecotourism group and I just offered to build them a website. I built one for a yoga nonprofit that was funding sea turtle research and just was kind of doing it to help some people out, to help out some business owners I knew. And then 
the pandemic hit and my internship ended and my plan had been to try and find a job in marine education, maybe at an aquarium or maybe to try and go back to grad school or do something along those lines. But the pandemic, you know, as for everyone shook up my life. And I remember I sat down with my journal. I made a list of all the skills I had. And I was like, how can I make money for my laptop? And I was like, what if I try web design? And um, yeah, it's really turned into an incredible thing because I love thinking about the user that's coming to your website and how they're able to move through what you're offering. A lot of websites aren't always designed with the person that's visiting them, even though that's the whole purpose of having a website. Mm -hmm. So that is what I focus on today. Um, visual communication, conservation communication. And I also work with other small businesses, just helping them communicate better to their audience. That's how I got into web design and graphic design. Yeah, I mean, that's a straightforward path, I would say, with a few turning points, but a natural one, well, natural steps to take one after the other. And now the term, what was it? Triple bottom line. Triple bottom line. Mm -hmm. What does that, just, just share with us what that means. So one bottom line, like the bottom line is usually making money as a business or a yeah. mm -hmm. I think that's a huge part of why our earth is suffering so badly right now is a lot of business models, especially um, in capitalist societies, they focus on this bottom line that is just profit. So when your only focus is to make money and to make more of it and to have wider margins, uh, things end up getting cut like to, to save costs. So that's how we end up having pollution into our, like straight into our water systems instead of paying to properly you know, take care of it. Um, and then it also becomes a human rights issue. As we know, a lot of things are still made outside, like at least here for the United States, a lot of our stuff is still made in other countries because we're outsourcing to places where we can exploit really cheap labor. Mm -hmm. So something that's really important to me and the businesses that I try to work with is what's called the triple bottom line. And that's people, planet, and profit. So you know, we still live in this world where we need to have profitable businesses. We need, you know, the exchange of plenty of money, but to be able to set up your business and communicate your business in a way where you're still putting people and the planet first, you're not cutting corners that are putting people at risk and the environment at risk. Which makes a lot of sense. And I feel that research as a, as an or as an industry or as a sector in societies around the world is also discovering or rediscovering values-based research, meaning making sure that the research approach is purpose-driven for many disciplines, maybe not all, but at least has as little as necessary negative in, impact on, on the environment or societies. In terms of like on societies, when I come to think about um, like uh, what is it, philosophical or, or psychological studies where you engage with local communities and sometimes indigenous communities and um, wherever in the world, like to make sure that there's also benefit for them to share what they have to share or what they are willing to share, but why? Um, to make sure there's a mutual benefit and not only the excavation of knowledge for the sake of research, whatever that may be, but to actually have a, a reasoning behind that's holistically approached and also invite the people who are being interviewed um, into the, the research design process. So in that sense, I think we're still in the early stages or different disciplines are approaching this and also individual, many individuals are urging to approach this in a sustainable manner of both for humans and the environment at large for the planet at large and yet there's also a lot of waste that's being produced a lot of suffering along the way or no return of investment of the stakeholders of research who are participating in one or the other way 
And we, we had an episode, for example, on helicopter research with a colleague, Nicholas Uta, in a previous episode. Yeah, about helicopter research where researchers from often Western countries come to, in this case, Kenya, um, work with the local researchers, and then the output is being generated exclusively under the Western researchers' names. So there's not much or very little or no benefit whatsoever in the local researchers in the Global South to even participate in the first place, but there were a lot of hopes in building these partnerships. And that's a recurring topic. And there's also many, many, much like increasing amount of talk and counter strategizing to counter that effect to happen. And that then can also easily have negative impacts on the environment in one or the other topic and discipline. So in the sense, like what I'm trying to say is that in research, I think we need and do have already similar um, mind shifts of how businesses or research should be conducted and can be conducted more sustainably and environmentally or planet friendly. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so this is basically your niche, also your target audience as an or as a service provider to um, exclusively work with businesses who already have that why clear to themselves mm -hmm. and need your service and expertise and getting their messages out there. Have you found it difficult to position yourself in the market or like like having such a clear um, scope for or idea of your favorite client um, to yeah to to get to work and also generate sustainable income for yourself as a business. So yeah, this is the mission that I originally started out with when I was trying to start my web design business was to work with environmentally driven companies. Um, and reaching them at first was really difficult. So I've kind of pivoted a few times and I've definitely started to work with a lot of just small businesses in the St. Pete area and working with a lot of people who have more social driven missions, I guess. But now I'm pivoting the focus back to working with environmental companies and I think that there are some challenges that come with that because sometimes there's not a ton of funding to do marketing sometimes you know they may not see the importance of communicating online what they're exactly what they're doing but I also find that uh, there are a lot of really passionate people especially in blue tech startups that understand the importance of their digital presence of their online presence and are really passionate and invested in getting online and having a cohesive brand a cohesive front and and having a lot of places where people are able to find them online and, and get behind that mission and i think that um that's definitely something i connect with people over because these businesses have incredible missions and they and they're incredibly important to this world um, but they may not totally understand the purpose of what they're trying to do with the website, but getting them to understand that like we can inspire people with a really good design, like taking your, your brand and your mission and communicating it through a visual design can inspire people to take action. It can invoke certain feelings. That's what I've really been focusing on lately is just honing in on user experience. So when someone sees your online presence or sees um, how you're presenting your research or your mission, what do they feel? Do they care about it? Does it draw their attention right away? People today have the shortest attention span. We have to grab them super fast. So being able to present what you're doing is more important than ever. And just briefly to clarify, what is Blue Tech? Blue tech is, uh, it's kind of like a new word. So it, the blue economy is the idea of ocean resources. So pretty much everything ends up relying on the, res uh, on the, the resources of the ocean at some point, at least here in the United States, because we import so much stuff like my like computer, clothing, this desk, like it, 
at least most of our stuff has something in it that was shipped on the ocean. So it's kind of like the idea of um, in the blue economy and blue tech is innovating the way that we interact with the blue economy. So kind of pivoting and uh, innovating how we're interacting with the ocean in a more sustainable way. So some really awesome examples of blue tech are some of the machines that are being invented to clean plastic out of the ocean or blue tech is also floating infrastructure thinking about what we're doing with our cities and uh, like our, our um, coastal cities as as the seas are rising and we're losing a bit of our shorefront how are we going to pivot with that um, there's yeah incredible stuff going on in blue tech very okay, also lots and lots of research in that area and yes opportunities for collaborate collaboration between startups entrepreneurs um, companies pr private entities of some sort and research academia in the oceanographies i have a friend and colleague who works in hope to have him on the show sometime soon sam dupont who works on ocean acidification as mm. a side effect of climate change and that's really mm -hmm. tragic because it shifts have you, have you heard of that i like before i met him yeah. I, okay you that's yeah, a big thing now it's like Yeah, it's like the the oceans getting more and more acid due to the rising temperatures. Yeah, and that kind of destroys our or changes whole ecosystems, like vast mm -hmm. areas. Um, yeah, and sea has been uh, blowing the alarm whistle for many years now, ever since I met him like a decade ago, and. I don't know if there's been much change policy-wise, but at least there's more and more awareness. And that's then a good starting point to take action on, which um, you also have to facilitate <laughs> to get the message heard more widely and more effectively. Um, yeah, so do you find yourself Like, what do you miss about research? You said that eventually you discovered for yourself that you see more meaning in the work that you do in facilitating both the research and also the, the execution on the nonprofit organization side. Is there things that you miss about being a researcher on the research um, workflows? Mm. Or maybe it's now overshadowed by all the activities you do as an entrepreneur. <laughs> so, so I do. I definitely miss being in the field. And I miss being like more hands-on. And I miss kind of having, I feel like I miss having more clear goals. Like I feel like things in, in my schooling and the research I was a part of, like it felt very linear felt like there was a lot of procedure and routine and sometimes being an entrepreneur is so chaotic and it's all over the place and it's just wild um yeah probably that but probably like being in the field is what I miss the most being mm. hands-on I feel like sometimes I'm just behind my computer a lot Which at the same time is also your passion and what you're good at and where you can see being useful for good purposes. Um, and talking about which, like what are you doing to still get out and away from the screen? Do you, have you built some strategies or habits around your, like how you organize your week or the day even to, to make sure you have enough off-screen time? I think I think so today I was feeling like I could definitely use some more ocean time so tomorrow morning I'm going paddle boarding I'm going to start the day out that way but uh, I also volunteer at a sanctuary an animal sanctuary so I try to make it out there at least once a month and that ends up being like a whole long day adventure just feeling like I'm like being a hands-on part of things again and uh I also teach yoga so I end up like having to okay. get out get outside and 
move my body with people. Well, that's a clear yes. From what I hear, you do a lot of activities off screen already, like that are built into your weekly agenda. Um, I wanted to, when you spoke about sea turtles, I just wanted to share a short anecdote. When I, um, when I was scuba diving in Australia at the other shore of the Great Barrier Reef, like every scuba diver's big dream. <laughs> and I had the funniest encounter. I was also already then quite conscious and, and aware of animal protection, especially of sea creatures. And I was guiding a couple who were quite curious and also new to scuba diving. And they, they were keen on petting all the fish under the water. Mm. And other critters was like, no, you can't touch the fish because that would destroy their protective layer on their... Anyways, um, and then there came a sea turtle along. Um, and they were gonna pet that sea turtle as well. It was massive, like one and a half square meters tall. And was, and I, I was giving them signs. Oh, please don't touch it. Just leave it alone. I mean, don't don't touch it. Just look at it. And that's uh, enough of of joyful experience for you for us. But then a sea turtle approached me. Apparently, my hair attracted it, and I thought it was seagrass or something. But like it came close to me and then snapped into me. I was like, what's going on? And I, I had to touch it just to protect myself. Like, what's, what, oh my what's gosh. happening here? And that was such an embarrassment for me. It's like after being such a lecturer to those people and they were just, right, what are you doing here? What are you trying to tell us? Even? <laughs> I don't know, we didn't speak about it afterwards when we were above water. But that was like the funniest incident I have with that sea turtle. Oh my god! so huge and cute. And so- They can be after- massive. Yeah, huge. Yeah. And it was mm-hmm. so cute to encounter one so closely right after watching Finding Nemo. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, when I worked on the rescue team in Hawaii, the sea turtles sleep on land there. It's the only place in the world that they, the green sea turtles, regularly sleep on land. Most people know that pretty much only the females go on land when they're nesting. Um, there are some other places where sea turtles have been sleeping on land, like in uh, Australia, but regularly Hawaii is the only place and researchers really don't know like exactly why there. Mm-hmm. But um, when I, before I started that internship with the rescue team, I thought most of what I was going to be doing was uh, rescues, you know, helping injured sea turtles, injured seabirds. Uh, monk seals but it ended up mainly being education in a way I felt like I was babysitting people a lot Mm -hmm. Um, because there are a lot of tourists that come to Hawaii and they don't know that these animals are endangered and it's really interesting to me because I feel like I, I grew up in the Colorado Rocky Mountains like I understand that there's wildlife and you respect it and so when I was working in Hawaii there was this one beach on the north shore that's very famous for uh, like tour buses stopping there to see the sleeping turtles because you can get right up to them you're not supposed to but people do mm-hmm. and a lot of what I was doing was telling people that you're not allowed to sit on the sea turtles and yeah. um, well, why would I even consider that but oh yeah it's like well it was really interesting because it's uh it was a trend for people to sit on a sea turtle and take a picture of it and post it on Instagram so one day I was working up there and there was this researcher who coincidentally was working with the same college I went to college with, which is all the way in Colorado. But she was asking that like, I didn't interact with people for that day because she was observing their behavior. And she was a social scientist. So her goal was to observe how people were interacting with the sea turtles beforehand. Um, So with this trend of like sitting on top of them. Mm -hmm. And then her goal was to implement this plan through social media to encourage people to take perspective photos. So instead of getting a picture of you sitting on the turtle, you're doing something with your hands that makes you look like you're making a heart around the sea turtle or that you're like holding it with your hands. And so you have to be like 10 feet away to make a photo like that work. And I love that. It was so inspiring because it's a, it's a brilliant way of uh, using like the digital world and social media to try and affect how people are interacting with endangered animals. Yeah, that's beautiful. Is that hashtag still available or can we can we link that in the kind of resources list? I don't 
I don't know. I can try to find it. I think that unfortunately, I think the project flopped because that I met her maybe two weeks before the original COVID lockdown in Hawaii. So you weren't allowed to be on the beaches. Mm-hmm. So the product, the project got, as far as I know, like it ended, researchers had to go back to the mainland mm-hmm. and you, people weren't allowed to be out anyways. And tourism no, stopped. was never implemented on scale to have a massive mm-hmm. hashtag. But, but it's a beautiful idea. Maybe whoever's listening can kind of pull off a hashtag campaign similar to that with other critters from scuba diving and all like like you said most turtles sleep under rifts so they they stuck themselves under cliffs and underwater so not to float up while they sleep mm-hmm. and then it's very popular to especially in australia warm water scuba diving to do night dives because it's a whole different scenery at night and a lot of critters and fish going around that are night active or more crustaceans rather not so many fish but but then it's one of the big things to see a sleeping shark or sea turtle and then the tragic is that when people shine their lights on them probably also heard about that they are confused they have no orientation they don't know where to go and then if they don't because when they sleep, their metabolism goes down, so they don't have to breathe as often. Like sea turtles are lung animals, so they have to breathe. Breathe. Um, and then, when there's torchlight, sh- when when you shine your torchlight on them, they w- they are likely to wake up. And then it's good practice. Well, first of all, not to to shine into their faces, so they don't wouldn't wake up, but some obviously do. And then, um, the the if that happens, then you have to shine your torch in the other direction so they find the way up to the surface so they can breathe because that's when they need to breathe. Otherwise, they panic and then they, like many drown in these incidents. And that's just so sad. Mm-hmm. And the scuba divers wouldn't realize that because that happens long after they've left. They just lose this orientation and then they drown because they can't find the way up because they're stuck under a reef. Okay, happy talk now. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, a lot of do's and don'ts also when we engage with wildlife. And the best do is stay away, keep your distance, take pictures, don't interact like physically with any critters, also for our own safety. And then everybody can remain happily ever after on this planet. Um, So, is it now time to talk about tank? Because you mentioned you're you're volunteering in the sanctuary. I love to talk about tank. I Who's love tank? it. <laughs> <Who's> tank. <laughs> yeah. So every time someone asks me what my favorite animal is, I really can't choose a kind of animal. But my favorite individual animal is tank. Tank is a white Bengal tiger that lives at Carson Springs Wildlife Conservation Foundation, and he has these crystal blue eyes. He was born at a facility that breeds cubs um, for like cub petting, which is tragically sad. And I'm not super updated on Florida laws right now. So I don't know if this has changed, but it used there used to be a weird loophole in the laws where you could have a tiger without a permit if it was under a certain weight. So Florida had this huge problem with roadside um, like circuses and they would have these little tigers and they would starve them to keep them under this certain weight and then they didn't want like big tigers so um Carson Springs has I should know how many tigers they have but I don't but like a handful of tigers that came from situations like this living in circus cars from pet uh roadside petting attractions um from circus attractions from people trying to keep tigers as pets Um, So they're doing incredible work. It's, I think it's always sad still to see any wild animal that is in a cage, but, um, or like an enclosure, in an enclosure. I would love for them to just be running wild, but I love Carson Springs because they are one of the best animal sanctuaries I've ever been to, ever worked at. And, but yeah, so getting back to Tank, um, 
he is just so adorable and he's he's very playful he always like comes to like rub up on the cage you know you can't go in and you can't pet him but you can tell that like he was raised as a cub that was pet because he kind of acts like a dog in a way mm-hmm. or like a, a house cat you know kind of like rubbing up and I don't know if you've ever heard the like chuffing sound that tiger er, that tigers make um maybe so, not but tigers for the longest time the Asian tiger has been my favorite animal but I didn't listen to them a lot. I just admired their pictures, like white life. Really. So something, something I learned that I found is super interesting is the difference, like the defining, one of the defining lines of like a big cat, like a tiger or lion, is that they can't purr. Mm, yeah, so they make yeah. like a weird, uh, like chuffing sound, at least tigers do. It's kind of hard to, to uh, do, do that. I can send you. Can you try? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I even so, okay. I'll you send you a video of him though yeah um so it's kind of like a happy noise that he makes um and then he's in his enclosure with Tabitha who is a strawberry tiger so white tigers are basically created through inbreeding right it's like that's how you get white tigers which is it's sad because that ends up coming with a lot of other health complications most of the time And that's super rare to end up getting a white tiger, especially with these beautiful crystal blue eyes. But Tabitha, his partner, she's a strawberry tiger. So that's the the orange color of a tiger. That's what she looks like. But her stripes are kind of like a darker orange. So she's kind of like all orange, like a tabby cat in a way. Uh, And that's even more rare, which means it requires even more inbreeding. Um, But they're very lovey together. And... I think that they're like, I love going to work there and just taking a moment to just be around those animals because I think that animals teach us so much about staying in the present moment and they just really motivate me to want to protect this world and the wild spaces that are left because these yeah. beings are so beautiful and I wish so badly that they could be living out their lives in a completely natural wild free environment. I, I need to share this like it's been on the top of my head we're talking about a lion here do you know Christian the lion I'm not sure okay well we will put the video which is on YouTube into the show notes or the, the component blog post let me just briefly like the, the the story is that it's a British captivated lion cub who was also bred for, from a zoo. And then apparently in the 60s or so, it was, it was a thing in Europe, including Great Britain and England in that case, to have, yeah, to have cubs at home, like dogs. Like other people would have monkeys at home until they go wild because they go crazy when there are no babies anymore. But So then that lion cub lived with um, two men in their private apartment and i think they also had a camera team throughout to kind of report on that but then for them it was really important to find a sanctuary in africa so for him to live a wild life as much as possible being a from yeah being from a captive kind of enclosure and also also so close to humans so it was clear that he would never roam the Serengeti all by himself but he was put under custodianship by a ranger in the Serengeti so he could be semi-wild and still have human protection also against poachers and then I think it was two years or so it's being said in the in the in the video and the moment the then grown Christian the lion but he then also met a, a lioness. They had cubs together. And then the two men um, came to visit to Tanzania. And then the moment he saw them, so he was still a tame lion and the ranger could pet him, could check on them. Also, he was also showing the ranger the cubs and, and the, the lioness was also kind of suspicious, but okay with humans being around because Christian had kind of signal to her look is okay this human is is a friend but then the two men came and then <laughs> like the moment yeah uh, you have to watch it and again it's in the show notes mm. um the moment they meet each other like it's just 
heartbreaking in the most positive way or hard i don't know what's the opposite of heartbreak like when you think mm. of it positively but it's mm. so moving like the way the joy and like for them friends or that family to reunite and then the guys like, it's not that they came to to take him back to england but you know just to say hi and and then our christian the life which introduces a small family to them like it was just so beautiful and it's so interesting like on facebook i have a personal campaign with the hashtag is also not my invention like other people also use it interspecies communication and i find it so fascinating and also not how animals and humans as another species of animals um, can communicate with each other without language and then for research is what pains me and why also I think I couldn't study what I wanted initially ethology like animal behavior the kind of research questions that are being asked any pet owner can tell you of course they're capable of feelings of course they're capable of consciousness and self-consciousness i mean how else would they survive in this world but especially animal behavior studies make a great deal of bringing research uh, i mean there's also great research out there but the way that animals have to be live in capture just to prove the most basic things that any pet owner can tell you yes of course and testify mm. like mm. in court <laughs> like why do yeah. we have to ask these questions okay why am i getting there from question the line but yeah so the feelings that are shared among these two very different species like human or two human beings online and then the trust level that the lion can also build for the lioness for them to accept mm -hmm. to see the cubs so close yeah i think that it, that's reminding me of this incredible movement that's happening at least here in the united states i think is should have already like been the way that we're doing conservation and a lot of research but there's this new i don't know how new it is because like i said i feel like it should have always been the way but um a lot of people are starting to talk about indigenous-led conservation so there are a lot of indigenous people here in the united states who have this like incredible wisdom and knowledge about the lands and most of the biodiversity that is here in the United States is on indigenous reservations, Native American reservations. And um, so there's this idea of not only just like partnering with indigenous people and indigenous communities, but letting them kind of lead the way that we're looking at the animals that are maybe on their lands or the biodiversity. Yeah, I, I like to kind of just think about that from a to think about research and conservation from a different angle because I feel like the schooling that I got was very western thought based which makes sense is it what it's a western university mm -hmm. but it can be almost too structured in a way I feel like that it doesn't allow people to ask raw questions does that make sense I feel like sometimes people get uh, can get very stuck in the procedures of things and maybe instead of instead of asking what like maybe there are people who already have the answers to some of the things we're trying to find are we looking at it from a full approach or are we looking at it from just our perspective mm -hmm. exactly yeah I'm, I'm happy you mentioned that because indigenous knowledge is also one of the key pillars of investigation and incorporation mm -hmm. into research practice what i'm trying to push also with many colleagues of mine and friends and other people in the research realm and uh, yeah so i feel research i think where research often has a misconception if i may put it so it tries to simplify things to understand and thereby researchers often lose touch to holistic approaches because we want so badly to understand one particular aspect of whatever, be it biology, physics. But nature is holistic, is intertwined systems, the world. Mm -hmm. Like we, I mean, it's not new that we depend on this planet. We don't own it. I mean, we're part of it as humans. And the concept of 
humans ruling this planet was brought about by my, as far as I know, and I've had insights of like Christianity or maybe any of those three or big religions that are now so predominating in many world regions for all. And what I've worked, like I work with indigenous people quite closely about a decade ago and then still have connections, friends, and try to find my way back to engaging more with indigenous communities as a non-indigenous person myself, which comes with a lot of uh, sensitivity challenges, many of which I posed to myself also. Was a, I, I was a guest myself on a podcast talking about this, so I can also link that to the, to the references of this episode. But so bottom line is, and I think it's also nothing special that indigenous knowledge encompasses, it's hundreds of years of observations made. So there is an understanding of the natural world and also the mm -hmm. unnatural world, like stones and like systems, stars. <clears throat> and why is it that Western cultures have decided to ignore this and reinvent knowledge with modern science where there's so much knowledge still readily available in yeah. our own societies and cultures with previous generations whom we decide to ignore and again reinvent the wheel really so many times and on what cost like is it really necessary okay as a researcher myself I don't really question my guilt so to say altogether there is necessary research and I think coming back to what we said initially to this episode what I think research can make use of more is to ask why. Why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. What's the purpose? Mm -hmm. What's the gain purpose. from knowing this? Yeah. Um, is it just to accumulate knowledge and on what cost? Like we have to do the math. What's the cost versus the benefit? And there was mm -hmm. one really bad example also coming out of Germany when it was about developing the nuclear, eventually led to the development of the nuclear bomb, which set out by Marie Curie and others well, who studied in France, but there's also others Einstein involved. And the, the goal was to develop a treatment for cancer, but then could and was misused for military purposes. And researchers, I think, have a certain responsibility also to draw the line in how to push research questions. And they were aware that it can be, like at some point they became aware of, well, this can also be misused. And there were debates and like different people, different opinions, decisions were made. And then here we are, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Russia today, like, or like other powers who are, threatening us with the same kind of things but why is this necessary and mm. okay big questions yeah hey again like not to question research as such i love and and we're both said i think being out there to explore to accumulate knowledge to to investigate is beautiful and i think also not only i think many animals also do and enjoy that to a certain degree and is that maybe that's also what differentiates us from the animal kingdom and maybe not, or it's probably not a sharp line between us and animals. But we have with this brain capacity, whatever we want to define it, becomes also responsibility. And the question I ask myself, like increasingly, do we, like, are we executing our responsible enough, our responsibility enough with political decisions and because for climate change we already have the evidence we know what we need to do and yet we're not doing it or we're not doing yeah. enough thereof i don't know but hey there's a new generation <laughs> and it's also there's a german song by a german band berlin based band and that kind of keeps ringing in my ear and it says it's not our fault it's not your fault it's not my fault that the world is the way it is but it's pretty much our fault it reminds the way it is and we're here to change things and we can change things yeah. for the better and a lot of changes are like that. okay mm -hmm. yeah i like to think about that idea sometimes it can feel super overwhelming and then 
you know, no one wants to take blame for it. And it's not something we can totally point fingers at someone with, you know, Mm -hmm. but I like to think about the ideas, like if you, you know, blame the people before you and who do they blame and who do they blame? And like, I don't know, where did something start? And like, that doesn't matter, Mm -hmm. but our, like what we have now is responsibility. And I find that to be really empowering. It doesn't really matter who, but we are being called to all come together and work together and do the best that we can do to move forward in a, in a cleaner world. And yeah, and also I think for better words, we've built the tools to really make use of like digital infrastructure. We are digital, like globally connected also digitally. We have means to communicate within seconds from one end of the world to the other. Like we're doing right now. World. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, we're actually doing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, let's just make more use of that for the better. Mm-hmm. But sir. What's your vision for the next five or 10 years of how you wish your work will impact the world, your clients? Like, what's yeah. your, or if you can dream it up like this moment? <laughs> I haven't thought about yeah, it. Yeah, I think my vision is to work with organizations who have, you know, incredible missions and get the general public to like inspire the general public to take action with these big missions with these big companies with innovation to show the general public that you can be part of something even if you don't have a science background even if you didn't go through you know any sort of course on sustainability or conservation that you can take action and you can vote with who you're showing up for and where you're putting your money and um yeah bringing bringing a lot of awareness to the people who are innovating the way that we're interacting with the natural world and make it more of a, an attractive thing. I think that's my vision to make conservation and sustainability and environmental action an attractive thing and not something that is daunting and super technical and something that's not for me. Mm. Yeah, it's just a natural thing to, of course, do because we care mm-hmm. for our own health, for other people's health, and mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense. Like, let's ask more whys. I think that's how we can maybe all move together. And yeah, and yeah, and I think with a visual appeal that you're creating and facilitating, it can also, <laughs> um, yeah, facilitate much of that indeed. Because for the longest time, also eco-friendly or ecological uh, groceries had a niche position in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. And now, this in Germany is like prime position. We're not the majority just yet, but it's like, it's now a luxury thing. It's cool to buy organic. It's hip. <laughs> it's And also like, I feel like open science, like good research practice now has the label with open like yeah has a label as open science similar to organic food but when you think about it isn't that how it's supposed to be in the first place so we shouldn't have to convince people to be socially and environmentally responsible and think about what they do what actions have what consequences and once we realize oh there's actually a negative effect here maybe i should adjust my course um so yeah but i think i think a lot of that is already happening so let's just push that agenda a little further definitely Mm. thank you so much for your time today and i think what i also told you in the prep talk for this episode i think there's a lot of need for your kind of services in the research sector and because a lot of researchers are doing be a little bit contrary to what I said earlier, but a lot of research is very much meaningful and deserves more and better showcasing, which there is also now a higher need and awareness for researchers to that themselves or to work with web designers like yourself to 
to get their missions online in a in an eye appealing form. So would you agree that if a research group now finds, oh, we are doing purposeful research, and we would like to learn from Abigail how we can improve our web presence, would you be open to receive inquiries? Absolutely, yeah. Last night I did a web workshop just talking about online strategy and how to speak to your audience and inspire them to take action. So if you want to learn more or if you want to connect, you can find me at bluefemtech.wave. Sorry. <laughs> if you want to learn more or if you want to connect, you can find me at bluefem.tech. So that's B-L-U-E-F-E-M dot T-E-C-H. Bluefemtech. Cool. Okay, and maybe we run a course together, so we have like workshops on that for researchers. That would be, yeah, that would be really cool. Cool, yeah, so here we go. Crossing, like bridging sectors, building bridges mm -hmm. for the triple P purpose, triple bottom line. Um, yeah, purpose for the environment, society, and also profit in a way like sustainability um, as a service provider and as yeah like like we all are in this ecosystem which is scholarly communication but also cross-sectoral so i think there's a lot to learn on a continuous level from each other thanks for opening up your perspectives to our audience and i certainly learned a great deal in the head beautiful flashbacks to some of the things we mentioned with um, Christian the lion and that sea turtle encounter a few years ago in Australia so yeah um, welcome back to the show whenever and sometime soon and all yeah. the best until then thank you for having me and a great pleasure see you soon yeah mm -hmm.